Thanks so much for sitting down with me, yeah. with us. Uh, by the way, I should tell everyone that there will be time for questions at the end. So as you percolate, um, just know you, you might get to ask them. Um, so where I wanted to start was, you know, just four years ago, you're working at Google and you're writing this manifesto saying, guys, hello, you know, we shouldn't build technologies that are so addictive. We shouldn't, as you have this very elegant phrase, um, participate in this race to the bottom of the brainstem. And basically, no one listened. I know Larry Page reached out to you afterwards, but effectively nobody listened. And now here we are, fast forward four years later, and <laughs> you have this enormous megaphone in the valley and beyond. Even Mark Zuckerberg is talking about time well spent. So my first question for you is, um, how do you take these ideas and build a movement? How do you actually have them trickle down to the bowels of companies, to the millions of micro decisions that get made every day that could change the way products are built here? Yeah. Yeah, I've learned, um, I thought I would maybe just share some, some lessons I've learned from the kind of movement sure. building systemic change process. Um, so as, as Lisa said, I, um, back in 2013 uh, at Google, I was a product manager. They had acquired a company I was a part of, and we landed there um, working on the Gmail team. And I was thinking, you know, if there was any team in the world, how many, how many people here just feel like um, distracted, confused, addicted by email? Like it kind of thrashes your attention. Does anybody feel that way? Right? Okay, so here's this sort of obvious social harm hidden in plain sight that everybody feels every single day. People spend like hours per day on email. And I was sitting inside of this room thinking, okay, if anyone were to care. It would be about, the Gmail team. It'd be the Gmail team. Like you could, you could talk to academics, but why <laughs> would you talk to them? Why don't we just fix it from the people who are building the product? And I was in that room and then we were talking about building the next version of Gmail, which became Inbox and hearing how the conversations were happening. And I was, um, you know, there's really well-intentioned people in that room, but I didn't hear the deep level of conversation we needed to have about our impact on people's lives. Like, email affects a lot of people's lives. Their stress level, their ongoing attention, what they get done, their productivity. So I made this presentation in part a response to that feeling, and then in part a response to looking at all of my friends, what was happening in Silicon Valley in 2012, 2013. My founders, uh, my friends from college started Instagram, and um, a lot of good-intentioned people I knew were building these products that seemed less and less about helping people and more and more about capturing attention, notifying you. There used, used to be an app called Path that you know, was like competing with Facebook and you would post a photo and they started sending notifications to you when your friend looked at it. So imagine getting a buzz to your phone just when everybody looks at something you did. Like just, it was just getting so low on the brainstem. And so I made this presentation saying never before in history have 50 designers in Silicon Valley affected what 2 billion people think every day. Imagine the sort of ant colony loaf of bread called two billion people's attention. And you're, <laughs> you're Google, you're designing that urban plant. You're like Jane Jacobs for a two billion person city. And you don't even see it that way. You just have some engineers who are like, let's make it buzz your phone when you get an email. But what happened when, when you would say to people in those meetings, like, hey, email, our product really stresses people out. What can we do about the stress? There, there was definitely an intention to try and reduce that stress, but then it would be, the question is how deeply are you thinking about those questions? And how well do you understand human nature to know what would genuinely reduce stress? Because mm -hmm. you can say, hey, we're, we're gonna design it to give you peace of mind, so we'll, like, we'll change the colors. Right. Like that's, 
that's one tiny thing, but like what would really dramatically take email down from the huge load that it is to like 5% of what it is that just helps you do what you need to do? So there's no rigor in there's, looking at that. So, so rigor, that's one of the missing pieces. But then to your point about, so how do we get here? So I made this presentation back in 2013, and I, I've told this story so many times, but um, you know, I sent it to 10 people for feedback by email, and then the next morning I came to work, and I had like more than 10 emails back to me, so I knew that it had started spreading, and I clicked on it, and in Google Docs it shows you the number of simultaneous viewers in the top right, and there was like 150 simultaneous viewers, and then the next day I went to work, I, looked at, I went to the back of the Google bus, and I turned around, and I saw that about half the laptop screens had it open. So it had started wow. spreading virally throughout the company, and then Larry, we had this conversation with Larry, and so there's this moment of recognition inside of Google where you're striking a chord about something that's going on that everybody feels. There's this increasing load of burnout, attention, distress. But it's not just that. It's like, what is social media doing to our relationships? What is it doing to children? What is it doing to um, you know, our political fabric? And so I, this presentation ended up going viral, but then nothing really happened. I got to study these topics, but I tried, I tried to change it from the inside. I felt really hopeless for years, and I wanted you all to know how do you go from your one person seeing a system of entrenched interests where billions of dollars are on the line to perpetuate a problem because the business model of attention means everyone has to stay in this arms race? What do you do as one person inside of one of the companies? Like, what do you do? So there you are, you wake up tomorrow, your eyes open, you take a deep breath and you say, go for it, like, fix it. Like, what do you do? And I had no idea what to do for... Um, I mean, years, there would be days I'd go to work and I felt like I just read Wikipedia and psychology and checked my email all day and tried to think creatively about, I could talk to this product manager or that product manager, and nothing happened. And, and you have this title, they gave you the title Design Ethicist, so they're a... Yeah, they know. carved out a space where you know, no one had ever studied what does it mean to ethically influence two billion people's attention, so I didn't know what to call that, and we called that Design Ethics and started kind of a field of conversation, and I found some allies. You know, I found some people who would literally send me an email with the subject line and my axe, like they wanted to lend their axe and, and, and help. And there was a PhD student in Oxford who was working for Google on the ethics of persuasion, and there was a sort of movement that started forming, but we didn't know what to do. Um, and I just wanted you to know that, you know, back then in 2013, you see this massive problem that affects everyone in the world. You don't know what to do. And it felt, I felt hopeless. I mean, just sitting there persevering for years where nothing was happening, like, that's just, that's an awful way to feel. We all want to go out and build things and make things in the world. And what, then, you know, then I left Google, and I did also didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew I had to create a more public conversation to create more pressure from the outside. And we, I gave this TED Talk on time well spent back in 2014 uh, in Brussels. And, um, the lesson there was if you create language that is very powerful and concretely describes a problem that people had just had icky feelings about but didn't have language to describe. So if you put language to something that is ideally surgically clear and arresting in what it actually transforms and how you see the situation, powerful language can change how people think and can create conversations in every single room if you, if you design it correctly. And, and I feel like right now, those conversations are happening in Silicon Valley. Right. Do you see the changes happening? Well, just to catch everybody up in case people aren't aware, so Time Well Spent was embraced by Mark Zuckerberg in January last year. He said the goal, it's the top of his 
like um, goals for the year post. You know, makes these yearly, like, what's my goals for this year? His goal for the year was making sure people's time on Facebook was time well spent. Apple and Google, the same year, um, both launched these screen time features that have the charts and graphs of your phone. That's all inspired by this sort of time well spent um, work. And so there's now this, we go from this race to the bottom for attention to theoretically this race to the top for who's better at helping people spend their time well or something. Which, just to kind of close the loop, that's, that's pretty amazing that you can go from trying to create language and memes and raise awareness and go from years of hopelessness to people really joining, you know, Roger McNamee, who wrote the book um, Zucked, that's been very popular and out right now. Um, he was Zuckerberg's mentor. And Lynn Fox, who's here, and Sandy Parakilis, who's an ex-Facebook privacy manager. All these ex-insiders started coming out and talking about it and creating momentum and pressure. And that's what led to these companies doing that. And so, you know, when you think about what is a movement, where does the movement exist? Like, the organic food movement, like where is that? Can you draw a lasso around like the lasso tool in Photoshop? Like where does the movement exist in reality? So, well, so that, so that it brings up a question. Okay, so Zuckerberg, probably the loudest proponent now of time well spent, though it was notable to those of us that knew your work that he didn't actually mention your name or the movement. Uh, what did you make of that? Uh, it's an awkward situation. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it was like um, it was his idea. Um, well, knowing what I know a little bit from the inside and people who are inside of Facebook who are very aware of our work, uh, we saw that as, it, it's really hard. That is not victory, right? The situation of what's wrong with technology is so much bigger than where it's causing us to spend our time that I much, now I view this much more as a co-option and a kind of a greenwashing of, greenwashing. of, of the way that, you know, especially for the intention mining companies like YouTube or like, like Facebook. YouTube also used the phrase time well spent now. Um, so, you know, how do you celebrate the fact that, again, after four years with nothing happening, we should claim this as a small win that we've been able to take the industry away from, you know, where we had been to something that's in the direction where we also own the language and people who are aware in Silicon Valley, there was four years in between when, you know, I just heard from someone last night, CEO of um, uh, one of the big uh, exercise fitness classes, uh, app applications on your phone that many of you probably have right now, that she had been totally enthralled with time well spent and put that through her whole company. Pinterest has a bunch of stuff on time well spent. So these memes had started taking over conversations and created conversations about what metrics would we measure instead of just how do we keep people engaged for as long as possible. So it, there, there is a genuine way in which time well spent, I think, has taken over. And then there's the kind of more greenwashy way. Because it, when Mark Zuckerberg was on a, um, uh, it was this investor shareholder call, and he said, our goal for this year is to make sure people's time on Facebook is time well spent, his next sentence was, that means more things like people watching videos together on Facebook. <laughs> and so, if you control the definition, you can say whatever you want. Well, then you answer my question, because I was going to say, that question of movement, does it start at the top or does it start at the bottom? And um, I'm wondering, as I'm looking at these big companies that actually can, you know, have so much impact on our psychology and our behavior, whether they're just paying lip service to these ideas, co-opting them or greenwashing them, so, uh, but not really changing their, their DNA, which is as you said, focused entirely on metrics like engagement. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th I think the challenge is what happens when you wake up 
you know, so th these guys are all my experience of uh, most of the people inside the tech industry, the ones that I knew, the Instagram guys. You know, everyone wanted to build something that just gets used a lot and has a lot of impact. They don't want to greedily make as much money as possible. They don't want to, um, you know, manipulate people. It might be different in certain cases, certain companies, but for the most part, people have these good intentions. But what happens when you wake up and, you, you know, it's like imagine you wake up and someone puts you in charge of the NFL, the National Football League, and your, your scientist comes to you and says, I'm sorry to tell you this, but I think that our business model is selling concussions on TV. <laughs> like, we just smash people's heads together and we sell it against advertising, and that's our business model. Right. And you realize that the essence of the sport itself, the core existential reason it exists, is the same as the thing, is the harm that it produces. Yeah, it's the DNA. It's the is DNA. The harm. So, if the call's coming from inside the house in terms of the problem, right, <laughs> then you have a real problem. And so if you're a tobacco company, you can't kind of shake out this thing. If you're Coca-Cola, you can't shake out this thing. So then you get this question about, you know, well, let's have the companies be ethical. Okay, but then you have this new situation where these companies aren't just products we use, they've kind of colonized the areas of public life. So you have Facebook colonizing the public square and all elections around the world. It used to be public infrastructure, and then they colonize it. And so is the answer, if, imagine like Coca-Cola colonizes every major public square around the world. Do you want Coca-Cola to do that and then just be ethical and have the 22-year-olds at Coca-Cola who are marketing, trained in marketing thinking about what would be good for a public square? In the same way, would you want the 25-year-olds at Facebook you know, who colonize the public square to think about what's most ethical? Or do you want a different set of interests and people and motivations and incentives governing that? That's like, I'm kind of hearing from you, like, burn the house down because the house is, the foundation is corrupt is kind of what I hear. Well, and this is why people say the business model, right? Because the business model is intrinsically extractive. Um, it's self-dealing. So, you know, when a mother cares for her child, this is from June Yoon, who wrote a book called Interdependent Capitalism. Um, when a mother cares for her child, she has a DNA level stake vested interest in her child's, um, in feeding her child in the best interest of her child, right? So, you know, she could be misinformed, but she's always trying to do what's in your best interest. But when you have the food system take care of kids, the food system can't just be concerned with what's in your best interest. It's more concerned by law in its best interest. So when you switch the provider from a person who has vested interest in your well-being to one that has vested interest in a different set of incentives for something that is a public or you know, sacred good, like the health of a child or the health of a democracy, you have a problem. So then is really the question, and, and I mean, this is gonna be big in the 2020 presidential campaigns in the US, obviously it's big in Europe. So is the answer just regulation? That the sense that you know, companies are not gonna change their incentives on their own. So one way of looking at this, and I was gonna ask you is, okay, so let's say you get rid of engagement or watch time, or any of these metrics that we've seen have these very um, harmful unintended consequences. What replaces them? That's one way of looking at it. What do you build that replaces them? But another, it sounds like what you're saying is, actually, the incentives themselves are perverse. So then the question becomes, okay, do you, is the answer regulation? You know, the regulator says, no, our elections take place these days on social media, and we, need to un we, need, we don't want to optimize for outrage. We want to make sure people get heard. We want equal airtime. Right. We want political ads to not be as divisive as they've been. Right. What's, what is the answer just regulation? Um, 
Well, there's multiple things going on here. And keep, I mean, let's just be honest. This is a very messy situation. So I'm sorry if any of you are feeling uncomfortable. It's, it's something we wake up to every day because we're kind of in the middle of the fire as we're trying to firefight it. And I will say that the thing that's pushed the companies to do anything is enormous amounts of public pressure. Um, while many of you remember Zuckerberg's hearing in front of Congress and walk away remembering one thing, which is what? That he didn't, he, that the Congress members who interviewed him didn't know anything, right? Um, but there actually was hearings prior to that and there were really good questions asked by many Congress members. And if I, people forget that because they, they look at just this one, this one instance. Yeah, I had the same reaction. Yeah. Like there were actually a lot of good questions if you watched the whole thing if, if you're, that he so didn't answer well enough. This is a conversation about human nature. If you're talking about hacking human nature and hacking people's psychology, if I were Zuckerberg, I would have paid to have that person ask me that bad question which was, if you remember, it was, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, how do you make money? And he says, uh, Senator, we sell ads, <laughs> right? That moment, everybody remembers that moment. Now notice that when your mind remembers that moment, it erases all the other five hours, right? Your mind doesn't remember those things. So you, you can design what people remember, which is that Congress is now incompetent. I'm not saying that's what they did, I'm just saying that's, that's one way to see it. Now, why did I come here though? Because this is not just about regulating the companies to not maximize for these bad metrics. That's one part of it. The point is, we ins while everyone's racing to capture attention, many of you are building things that are about helping the world, right? And you have to compete for the same race for attention. You're competing against Google's biggest supercomputers that when you land on a YouTube video, it wakes up an avatar version of you, splits test 100 million videos to figure out the perfect video that's going to keep you watching. And so it knows the perfect thing that's going to keep you on that 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 countdown to keep you on YouTube longer. That's what you're competing against. So it's like you and your thing that's going to help people not be bankrupt or help them find emotional support or mental health support. Like these good things that you're building are competing in the system of perverse incentives. So our goal is not just to regulate the big companies, but to change the incentives of the whole industry so we're not racing for this perverse thing, but we're actually racing to improve uh, the conditions of people's lives, which is the things that you're working on. And for, for, for this audience as well, um, if you're a nonprofit or even, let's say, a news organization, is it okay to use some of the same tactics? Let's say we, you know, we are racing for engagement at the Washington Post. Right. I'm sure you know, a lot of people here want to spread messages that are good for the world, but yep. you use the same brain hacking tactics, or do you? Yeah, so there's this, there, when I was, <laughs> this is a big, big conversation. Um, when, when I was um, at, at Google, the way I framed that research work was what is it, how do you ethically influence someone else's mind? When I was a kid, I was a magician. It's all about knowing the limits of other people's minds, knowing their mind's weaknesses. And it's not like you can say to Facebook, hey, stop influencing people's minds completely. Like, you land on a Facebook page, they have to pick a color for the top toolbar. Is it going to be blue? Is it going to be orange? Based on the color, it'll change the frequency with which you click on it. Like, they can't not influence your choices. So the question is, once you understand people's um, limits in, of their nervous system and how they really work, how do you ethically hold that asymmetric knowledge about you have power, they don't, right? So you walk into a doctor's office, they have a lot of power, they have a lot of knowledge about your body, your physiology, you don't have that much knowledge. And instead of saying, hey, you're not gonna have my data, I'm not gonna tell my doctor my information, or they're gonna, what if they you know, leak it to Russia? It's like, no. I actually want my doctor to have as much information 
so that they're in service of helping me. Right, and I'm right? predisposed to believe they will. And I'm predisposed to believe that they will, and they're not an amorphous company, ideally. They're like a person and all that stuff. But now you have the situation where you walk into this environment called 2019 social media companies, and you hand them your data and every click you've ever made. And the question is, are they on your team? Right? And so when it comes to ethical influence, the first thing to align, and I said this in my TED Talk four years ago, is the, the ethics of persuasion means the persuader has to have the same goals as the persuadee. So that's just alignment of interests. Okay. And um, you know, a good example of this is uh, the streaks feature. If you show people the number of days in a row that they've done something, it causes them to keep doing it. So if I said you worked at, out at the gym five days in a row, now I've just given you something you don't want to lose. So I manipulated you, but you're the one who wants to go to the gym, so you don't mind that I've done that. Um, so there's apps, there's like meditation yeah, the apps. The art of the nudge. Meditation apps use them too. Use, use that too. Oh so wh is that okay, yeah. you're asking me, versus you have um, the Snapchat uh, app, which shows the number of days in a row that two kids have sent a message back and forth to each other. So if you don't know how this works, it's, imagine putting two kids on treadmills, tying their legs together with a string, and then hitting start at the same time. They both have to keep sending a message back and forth every single day, and it shows 150 days in a row when you're 13 years old that you've sent a message to your friend, and they're going to think that if you don't send the message back and keep the streak up, that your friendship's worth nothing. So that's a level of brain hacking or manipulation where they didn't say, hey, my goal in life is to send 150 days in a row of messages to my friend. But the ethics of persuasion is corrupted if I can crawl deeper down your brainstem and make you think that that's what you want. Uh, so if I've manipulated you into thinking that you actually do want to define your life success in terms of how many days in a row you send that message, you think that's ridiculous, but look what you do with airline points, with, you know, you, you choose based on what, I mean, so we're all colonized by these races to the bottom of the brainstem, and this is partly a movement for waking up and recognizing what are the choices that we really want to make, and how is technology completely steering us away from the world that we need to live in. Uh, I want to leave time for questions because I know this audience is going to have a lot. So shoot up your hands. There are mic runners uh, that will, anyone whose hands, it's a first come, first serve kind of question situation. I see this woman here and I see someone bringing a mic to you. So, uh, Hi, thank you for your um, comments and your concerns. I just had two questions, maybe statements. Um, one, uh, what work are you doing right now around like automation of jobs and how do we hold companies accountable for that? Um, and two, I think this the issue that's been coming up lately for me that I'm really interested um, with the heads of these tech companies and that their diversity folks is um, how these different online groups are like radicalizing themselves and now we see it's like a whole thing. How is that possible for them to get so far? But I know of so many of the different activist groups that I've worked with, they get their pages and videos and groups deleted instantly. But these other groups have been allowed to amass thousands of people. They're not even using code words or anything like that. So I'm wondering with these different companies, who do you have in these positions that's supposed to be tracking this? Because to me, it feels very deliberate that some of this stuff is getting leaked out. I think getting, they just- Getting I, leaked out? Getting yeah, like some of these different groups that are online like radicalizing people, quote unquote. I feel like the folks that are working in these companies are purposely not flagging them and taking them down. Uh, I see. Mm -hmm. um, and what can we do to change that? Yeah. Um, so the first question about jobs, we actually don't work on those topics, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass. Um, there's many people who are, and I think it's super important work. We focus mostly on how technology and steering two billion people's attention is sort of slowly tilting the social fabric in these dangerous directions, which relates to your second question. So um, the most efficient business model for YouTube is to have zero 
people that it hires doing moderation and to have algorithms creating two billion Truman shows most efficiently calculating who, which viewer gets mapped to which channel, that's the most efficient, cheap, profitable thing for them to do, which creates the problem you're talking about. Because if I'm YouTube and you sit there and you land, here's a real example, you land a teen girl on a dieting video, YouTube recommended anorexia videos. Because all it's doing, it's not, there's no human being who wants that to happen, but it's trying to calculate what would be the perfect thing that keeps you there. And for a 13-year-old profile who's clicked around, she looks just like all these other 13-year-olds. And we watched how when we showed the dieting video, there was this mysterious word called anorexia that tends to be really good at keeping people there for hours. And so it just calculates that out. So the thing you have to understand is that, um, first of all, this is a digital Frankenstein. It's uncontrollable, as we said recently in an article that Liza wrote. And, um, and the, we have to change the business model because this is, this is what's steering people to white nationalism, to conspiracy theories, to flat earth, to anti-vaccines. All of these issues are epiphenomena of one business model, which is the most efficient way to get users watching stuff. So it's like, instead of playing whack-a-mole, let's go right to the source. And the problem is, of course, meanwhile, while that might be the right diagnosis, we have this real-time situation where, as you pointed out, people are getting radicalized and these groups are not getting shut down and some of the good groups are getting shut down. The, the, group, the groups, for example, in Burma that are working on like, peaceful change in when Facebook was dealing with Burma, they didn't have enough people who spoke Bur Burmese, so they ended up shutting down some of the positive activists in trying to deal with the situation there. If you didn't know, there's a genocide happening in Burma, and it's fake news at the top of Facebook that's been amplifying it. Um, so this is this really dangerous situation that we're in, and it's through public pressure that the companies respond to it. Frankly, I think YouTube has gone under-noticed. I mean, this maybe mirrors what Tim O'Reilly said today. Uh, but Facebook also, both these companies, YouTube and Facebook, I think needs more attention on both of these platforms. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll just say quickly on that, that I would say YouTube is at least a year and a half behind Facebook in their whole operations around hiring moderators. We wrote a story on that and that, you know, everyone there acknowledges both places that there really aren't enough moderators in the world. I mean, these companies would go, would actually go broke, the richest companies in the world, if they had to hire the number of people it would actually take to mon monitor the internet at scale. Yeah. Which is why I think we, we really, I, I think we're going to look back at this. Um, well, there's a lot of ways we're going to look back at this because it's, it's a very dangerous situation. But um, we're going to look back from a technology perspective as, as this is the era of like the fossil fuel age of a, of a technology attention companies where we were drilling and extracting human attention. And that extractive model was externalizing a global geopolitical, uh, sociopolitical shift and, and harm to all of society. And we woke up and realized, oh my God, what have we done? And we moved to this different regenerative approach. And that's the transition we're trying to catalyze to. Well, I'll say, I, I wish that we had more time and I'm sure people have a lot more questions. So I hope everyone will get a chance to talk to you afterwards. Come to me too with stories for the post. We're always trying to cover these things too. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.